Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here. And today we're going to be in the book of 1 John. So if you want to turn or tap your way to 1 John, if you have a copy of the Bible, if you don't, please don't panic. We'll put all the verses and quotes I'm going to use today up on the screen. However, we would love to give you a Bible and a readable English translation so you can kind of follow along with us. All right, I hope you're doing okay this morning. Christmas is coming, and it's coming pretty quick. I don't know if it felt for you like uh, last Christmas happened, like pretty recently, but for Rachel and I, it kind of felt that way. As you get older, maybe, uh, things just go a little faster. Christmas certainly snuck up on me, and now that it's here, uh, you kind of have one of those almost New Year moments where you stop and take a little bit of stock on how the last year went, and am I kind of like ready for the next one, I mean, I think about a Monday morning, my week's a little different maybe than like the traditional week, but for most of us, when you wake up on a Monday, I don't know, it's a little hard to get out of bed. Like my kids aren't teenagers yet, but the Monday morning is a difficult wake up for us. You know, you, you can bribe them with like um, the little microwave pancakes or whatever, but it's still hard to get little ones out of bed on a Monday. And to start a new year is kind of like... I mean, it's exactly 52 times harder than that because it's not just starting a new week. You feel like, okay, here we go again. And for Rachel and I, uh, where we are kind of in a life stage, we're trying to think that way. Not just to like, are we okay? But like, how do we keep doing this? You know, we've been at Hope now for, you know, help to start Hope Church. And we've been here for uh, almost 10 years. Hope will turn 10 this 2024 October, and when we hit the 10-year mark, uh, for us, we're pumped to still be here. Like, that's something we continue to desire, and yet it's not like a given that we'll be able to. I mean, you think, okay, we've done life here for 10 years. We, we love it. We love Hope Church, but this life isn't easy. It takes a toll, like there's a price to be paid for doing what we're doing. And so we've had to ask that question. How do we do this for another like 30 years, 40 years? I mean, not that you guys don't take care of me, but like retirement's probably not going to be like 65. <laughs> so whenever, whenever like I like, you know, stroke out or whatever, well, like how do we get from here until then? And how do we not just be exhausted? Like, I understand that the Bible is clear that in this world we will have troubles, but, but what's the walk supposed to look like? When you get to 1 John, he talks about not being um, discouraged, not, not losing your confidence, and instead having an unshakable confidence, having an assurance of God's love for you, his purpose for you, his, his calling on your life, that you are his. Amen. That's fantastic. I'm into that. But John goes a little bit further and he talks about how that would actually like impact your longevity, how, how it would actually feel to obey God if that were true. So listen, it, there's one thing in particular he says here. I want you to see if you can find it. So you go to 1 John chapter 5, starting verse 1. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves Whoever has been born of him. By this we know that the, the love, I'm sorry, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 
and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he starts by talking about identity stuff. This is what it is to be a child of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus, that's because you've been born of God, you're his. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. Okay. And we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we obey. There's a a natural outflow that takes place from being his and believing to obeying. That makes sense. He finishes by talking about how the world is obviously opposed to what the Lord is doing. And yet there is victory. There's an overcoming that takes place. But right in the middle of these couple of verses, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Did you hear that and think like, well, yeah. Like, is that an obvious amen for you? I understand that you understand what these words mean. I think you do. Burdensome means like creates a burden, like it's difficult. It's something that's like um, ungainly, something that you wish was not the case. He's saying the commands of God are not burdensome. But when I say that, if you're actually looking at your life and actually looking at the toll of trying to follow after the Lord, when I say a sentence like that from the Apostle John, That God's commands are not burdensome. Do you overwhelmingly agree with that sentence? If you understood the premise of my like introduction here, where I'm talking about how do we go another 30 years, you might understand that I don't necessarily just amen that sentence. I know that it's true, and my thought that it's not true is is wrong, and that's sin in my heart. But I want to understand it. And if you're like me, you, you may have the same question. I think if if you look at the places where the church today and certainly the culture is furthest from Scripture, I think it might be in this exact phrase. The idea of the, the one who obeys God's commands as though they're not burdensome. What do I mean by that? Well, most of the Christians that I know either don't follow the commands. They're not all that concerned about spiritual disciplines in their life. Obedience in their life. Sacrificial living. They just don't seem to care that much. And I think the Bible would ask the question about whether or not that's what Christianity is. Even if you say that's what you believe. So I I see totally inactive Christians. But then I also see active Christians. And yet you think, oh, okay, well, they definitely get it. Well, I don't know, because when you look in the heart of an active Christian, you see that sometimes what motivates their activity, their obeying of the commands, are two kind of P words. One is pride, and the other is penance. They may be obeying God's commands because they, they want to actually honor their own name. They have in their head that by obeying God is somehow going to increase their stock. And so they're doing it, but not out of a love for God or even really a regard for God, but out of a regard for themselves. In the New Testament, that's what we call a a Pharisee. But there's also people that, that are ashamed of something they've done. 
And they have this idea that if they work hard for God, maybe he will somehow pay off the debt that they owe. Man, the enemy is constantly accusing us. We've talked about that some in this series, about how the enemy is constantly making you think that God cannot love you. And if he makes you think that, you got to do something about it. Well, what are you going to do? Well, the enemy says, get to work. Because he knows that if you try, if you, if you attempt to appease God with your good works, you're just going to kill yourself. I mean, maybe not suicide, but I'm just saying, like, you're, you're literally going to work yourself beyond your capacity. It won't be out of love. It will be like uh, running an engine without oil. It, it would just be a dry kind of grinding that breaks. And we see that happen, man. You see people eventually just sort of give up and walk off. Maybe go back to the thing they felt ashamed of. They don't think it's good, but at least it was pleasing. Is that what John's describing? Well, no, of course not. That's burdensome. What kind of obedience is not burdensome? Well, you come through the scriptures, you come across a couple of passages. There's one, and it's not really about this, but it's a good example. There's this guy, Jacob. We talk about in the Old Testament, being the, the, the people of Israel being the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These, these patriarchs, these great fathers of the faith. Well, Jacob, before he was really that great a father of the faith, was on the run from his brother. And he was out with some other family, and he, and he saw this girl that he wanted to marry. He loved her. Her name was Rachel, like my wife named Rachel. She's a beautiful girl, and he, he wanted to marry her. And the dad of the girl said, well, yeah, you're going to have to work for her. <laughs> I don't know. This is what they did in the old times, I guess. <laughs> and he looked at his daughter and said, nah, about seven years should do it. You, you work for me seven years, and that's, that's all she's worth. And Jacob worked. He worked hard for Laban for seven years. But here's the verse. It says in Genesis 29, 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Was that seven years burdensome? Why? Because of the love he had for Rachel. Not pride. Not penance. He doesn't seem to really feel that sorry for what he did to his family. <laughs> and he's not really even building his own name yet. He's just doing one thing here. He's working because of love. If you read through the Old Testament, there, you read the whole Bible, there's, there's one chapter or, you know, we, we, you know, a psalm isn't really a chapter, but there's one chapter that's the longest in all of Scripture. Does anybody know what it is? Bible trivia? Oh, geez, you got to go back to the bridge. They'll teach you. All right. The, the longest one is Psalm 119. Super, super long. It's 140, uh, 76 verses. And each one is a, an acrostic. So the guy that wrote it, which was King David, he sat down with the Hebrew alphabet and he challenged himself to write a stanza of poetry with each letter of the alphabet. And then each stanza would begin each of its lines with that letter. So A would have eight lines and each of those eight lines would start with the letter A. And then you would go to B and it would be the same thing. And he challenged himself to create that structure so that people could actually read and then memorize what he had written. So important was this thing. So dedicated was he to this thing that he did that level of effort. And do you know what he was writing about? The law. Here's what he says. This is indicative of the whole thing. He says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. 
I'll keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Do you see a third way here? This isn't inactivity. Do whatever you want. Try to just not think too much about it. It's not prideful or penance kind of activity that tries to buy God off or distract him with your good works. There's this other way of obedience. There's this other way of obedience that is so lovely that you regard the law or the set of commands you seek to obey as lovely. You, you would even delight in God's commands towards you. I mean, that's totally different, and that's what I want. That's what I want for us. I think that's definitely what John is challenging us with. And if you think about the kind of work that you're hoping to do, that you're hoping to kind of be part of in building the kingdom of God, we can't afford any lower motive. There's too much at stake and there's too much to do. Like we can't afford to work from any one of these baser motives. We've got to understand what he's talking about. And here's how I kind of want to think about it. There's a metaphor that scripture gives us. And one is the sort of pride or penance way, and the other is love. And here's how I kind of think about it. One, from the Old Testament, it's a very famous story, but I don't know that we really give it its due. Right after the flood, so if you've, if you've never read the Bible before, there's a creation account, and then there's a kind of the fall. So God makes everything good and perfect. We're supposed to spend our time with him and enjoy him forever. But we break his law, and we become separated from him. He's holy, and we're now sinful. And after that, that break takes place, we see that break work itself out. The first couple of kids actually attack each other and one kills the other. It's not long after that that the wickedness of humanity becomes so pervasive that God creates this flood to judge the world. And then you have Noah, uh, yeah, Noah builds his archiarchy and, and makes it through the flood. Well, after the flood subsides, you have humanity with the same curse on it. We still have the same rejection of God sort of mindset. And the whole of the people of the world at that time built a tower called the Tower of Babel. But what the Bible is clear about and what is essentially a pretty short story is not just where different languages come from. What the Bible is clear about is at that time, humanity built a tower, but it wasn't for God's glory. It was for their own glory. For their own glory in, a, in opposition to, as opposed to God's glory. In building this tower, they were saying that they were important or that, that they were almost like self-sufficient. They were building a tower to their name that they may not be scattered around the earth. Well, a lot of our Christian activity is just trying to bake and build with these bricks of our obedience a tower, but not to his name, to our own name. I don't want to be too intense. I mean, I think even the best of us have mixed motives and, and you're going to try out of love to do good things and there's still going to be some pride mixed in there. But, but I want you to try to see what John is commanding, what he's warning against. The New Testament talks about a different kind of building. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see the opposite? On the one side, they're building a tower for themselves in opposition to God with heaven itself fighting against. And of course, God wins immediately. In the New Testament, you now have God building a building that we are cooperating with. You're almost like the material of this building that God, it says, is both the builder and the cornerstone and the dweller and the life. It's like a living building. Man, that's what I want to be a part of. That's what I want us to think through. And what we're thinking about, we're kind of using abstractions or principles. Let's, let's just talk about it at the level of example. If we say that God's law can be delightful and not burdensome, let's take some laws and run it through the system and see if that actually checks out. Last week, uh, a couple weeks ago actually, we were in John 4, and he talks about how we shouldn't believe every spirit. If you read with me, if you have your Bible open, you can just scan back up a little bit to 1 John 4, verse 1. He says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the way, I'm sorry, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. What is he saying? He is commanding you to test the spirits. And if you remember how we talked about these verses... He's commanding you to be thoughtful about what the gospel is and about what falsehood is. That means he's commanding you to study. I don't know how many of you like sought to like put that into practice after we went through 1 John 4, but you should have. God calls you to open your Bible and read it. Do you? God calls you, when I, when I reference some of these other resources that you could look at, you shouldn't read all of them, but there's probably a couple of them you could pick up and submit yourself to in order to gain wisdom. You ever read the first couple chapters of the Proverbs? The, the writer of the Proverbs says, whatever you do, get wisdom. Whatever you do, get understanding. It's more precious than silver or gold. Believer, you have been commanded by God to be a thoughtful reader of the scriptures. Are you? Now, I'm just going to throw that out as a law, as a command. And when I do, especially if you're not really bookish, it's going to sound burdensome, isn't it? You know, usually you have people that are kind of bookish or people that are kind of social. For all of our social people, if I tell you to sit down and study, ha, that may not be your favorite command. But let's re-spin it a little bit and try to understand it how John would have said it. When he tells us to study, to test the spirits, he's saying it with the context of your love for the Lord. Well, how do you understand a false spirit? It's by knowing the true spirit. So what he's commanding you to do is to study the face of God. Now, if you're uh, aware of, of an fMRI, MRI is the big scary magnet thing they put you in. It's like a coffin. You just lay in there and they scan you. They've got a version now called an fMRI, meaning they can scan you while they do stuff to you or, or have like different things, like you, you do something and, and they watch your brain as you do a different task or, or see a different stimulus. And there was an fMRI that was done of musicians listening to music and non-musicians listening to music. 
Now, non-musicians listening to music would have their brains light up in ways that showed they were being impacted emotionally by the music they were listening to. The music still worked. Like, they didn't know how to play those songs, but the songs still worked. And we all know that's true. Many of us listen to music. Most of us don't play it. But when they have a musician listen to music, not only the parts of their brain that represent sort of an emotional reaction to the music lit up, that did light up, but they also had functional parts of their brain, parts of their brain that had to do with the math of it or the structure of what they were listening to light up. They were understanding that music at multiple levels at the same time. Listen, if you're willing to do the work and understand more about the God you serve, not only will you be wiser in discerning the spirits in the sense of discerning the influences in your life, you also are going to start enjoying looking on the face of God. I mean, that's the study of theology. It sounds maybe a little bit dry because it's historical or a little bit dry because it's philosophical. But no. When you study about who God is, you enter heaven itself because don't forget what heaven is biblically. Heaven is being in the face of God. It's, it's, it's the time when we get to be with him and see him face to face. Now through a mirror dimly, and I'll tell you, I've had to read a lot of theology books and there's some dim mirrors out there, right? Like <laughs> there's some you need to polish, but, but as you are studying... If your motive is the love of the Lord, it flips things entirely. All right. I said one that the bookish people might like and the social people might not like. Let's talk about one that the social people might like and the bookish people might not like. We have also been commanded to share about Jesus. What we say as evangelism. So Mr. Hobbs was talking about these lovely cards that Sarah did. And yes, Sarah did them. And yes, they are lovely. These little invite cards. Did everybody know what I'm talking about? Do you have them on your chairs, maybe? I don't know what happened this morning, if they put them in the chairs or not. If they didn't put them in the chairs, there's big stacks of them as you walk out. There were stacks of them as you walked out last week. Did you grab them? I don't know. There were some stacks left at the end of the day, so I have to think that some of you might have thought, eh, maybe not. <laughs> if you walked right by, let me ask you about that. This is, uh, you know, not the sum total of evangelism. Like, We've been called to build the kingdom of God and tell people about who Jesus is. Handing them this card, as well designed as it is, is not the totality of evangelism. But it's a start. I've asked you multiple times to try and build your testimony into like a two-paragraph experience. And I get all kinds of stuff back from people. And a lot of it, if you just sum it up, is they don't want to do the task. Oh, my testimony is too complicated. To tell the story of God's grace in my life would take years. Well, I don't have years, and neither do the people that are listening to you. Give me two paragraphs of God's work in your life so that somebody can hear how God saved you. Now, if we just talk about that as evangelism, it's pretty tight and, and a little bit daunting. Because you're thinking, okay, that's pretty exact. I have to do that well. It kind of reflects on that first task about studying. But it's also scary. I don't know that I want to talk about, my coworker, talk about God with my coworker and have them possibly, like, reject me. Maybe they won't reject me, but they will feel uncomfortable, and I will feel uncomfortable, and I don't want to feel uncomfortable. That's why it's called uncomfortable. Okay, well, let's reframe it a little bit. That sounds pretty burdensome. But if you think about evangelism as John is inviting you to think about evangelism, 
It's the same as you telling the story of the great loves of your life. My poor children, I love to tell them about their mom. Next week will be 14 years of marriage for us. Our anniversary, we celebrated on Friday. We went out and had a great time. And I love to talk to our girls and tell them some of the stories about how Rachel and I met in our first date at a Waffle House. Does anybody know what a Waffle House is? <laughs> Pretty classy first date. <laughs> I love to tell about the proposal. I proposed to her on a church stage. It was a very large church in Nashville that we're from. And no, nobody in there, just me and her. And I started this little speech and she had no idea what was happening. Like she still didn't really realize. So she just was talking about whatever as I was like sweaty and talking to her about how I love her. And this is so important to me. And, and then I like hit my knee and opened up the box and she says, yes. And I had a buddy in the back at the sound area. My dad was there too, actually. And they hit the buttons and all of a sudden the place went crazy with lights and Barry White started singing. Not live, but like a recording of Barry White started singing. When she said yes, you know, and took the ring. I love to tell them about our wedding, about the early years. I love to tell them what I like about their mom. Why? Now, I have girls, but they don't sit down and say, Daddy, please tell me more about mom, <laughs> about your marriage or about your wedding. They don't ask those questions, but I tell them why. Because I want to talk about it. Well, why? Because I love their mom. And when I'm thinking about them, I want them to be like their mom. Maybe there's some stuff I don't want them to repeat, but in general, I would love it for them to follow our pattern of like kind of courtship and then marriage. So, so I, I want to talk to them about it out of joy, but also out of a hope for them. Well, do you see how evangelism can feel like that? How it might feel like talking about the one that you love? And how it might flow out of a desire for that person to also experience that kind of love. And that's, I think, exactly what John's talking about. John gives us one more example, and it's a little bit indirect. We talk about the command to study or the command to share. But there's, there's another one that's a little bit indirect in here. Let's, let's look at it. If you continue down in 1 John 5 to verse 6, it says, This is he who came... By water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we have received the testimony of men, the testimony of God is Greater, And this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave, uh, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. What are the three things that remind us and convince us? He says, the water, the blood, and the spirit. Now, I'd love to talk with you more. We're running low on time. But when he's talking about water, I would love to talk to you about how I decide what this means. But when he's talking about water, he's talking about the fact that Jesus was baptized. Think about that for a moment. 
We are commanded to go and baptize people as we share the gospel with them. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is a command, and it's a command for everybody who believes. It's a command for people to do with people that believe. It's a command for people who believe to be baptized. When Peter preached in, second, uh, in Acts chapter 2, the first big sermon after the Holy Spirit indwells the believers and they're speaking right after Jesus' resurrection and then ascension. And Peter says, now when they heard that, uh, when Peter kind of finishes his sermon and tell, told them that they have, that they are the ones who killed the author of life, he says, um, Luke says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The listeners were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This sounds a little bit like the penance people. This is somebody that's ashamed of what's happened. And they go to God and say, well, what do I do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He says, believe and be baptized. Be baptized, be baptized doesn't save them, but it's absolutely commanded. Now, at Hope Church, our experience has been a lot of the adults that we get to baptize have, have professed Christ at an earlier point in their life. And for whatever reason, you know, just didn't get baptized right away. For whatever reason, over the last couple of years, a lot of our adult baptisms actually kind of fit into that category. But whether that's you or whether you're somebody who recently has accepted Christ, baptism is a bit burdensome. Seems like it. You got to tell everybody why you're being baptized. You got to sit there in the water. I mean, not to make it sound bad when John's about to do this like right now, but it's a little bit awkward. Some people don't necessarily want to, to cumber themselves with that burden. But what you're actually doing when you're baptized, what Jesus is, is leading you through is, is you're following after your Lord. Think about the fact that Jesus was baptized. Why was he baptized? Well, Matthew 3, John accused, uh, says to Jesus, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. What he was doing with baptism was this sort of cleansing ritual that was helping everybody to see their sin. They were repenting before God. Why would Jesus the sinless want to do that kind of a, a ceremony? Well, Jesus said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What? New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington says, even as a virgin born, divine incarnate, unique person in the world, the son desires to be wholeheartedly obedient to the father, i.e. righteous. Thus, he must submit to the God-ordained message of the life dedication preached by John. And so do we. Now, I talk about baptism. I talk about evangelism. I talk about study. But what are we really talking about? More than all these examples, what I'm talking about is a response of love from the love of God. With the water, you see that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for you. He lived a life that was perfect so that he could give you all righteousness. Whether you evangelize or not, whether you study or not, whether you're baptized or not. He was for you. That's the water. When it talks about the blood, it's obviously talking about Jesus shedding his blood for you. He didn't just fulfill all righteousness. He also paid all debt. 
Your sin before a holy God deserves to be punished. The wages of sin is death, according to Romans. So not only has Jesus given you righteousness, he's also taken your sin. And then finally, when it talks about the Spirit, it's not just that God fulfills all righteousness for you or takes all of your debt with his blood. It's that in love, he comes, he does those things so that in love, he can come and be with you. To talk about being filled with the Spirit is not like you have Samson-level strength powers. To talk about being filled with the Spirit is to talk about being with the Lord now, even before we're with him face to face. Why? Because of love. So let me just ask you, like, have you encountered that love? Do you know the Lord like that? We're about to watch as John is baptized. And you're about to watch his video, his testimony video, where he tells you why he's being baptized. But what he's doing is just an expression of what all of us have access to in Jesus. If that's you, does your life light up with the love of God that motivates obedience? That motivates a a desire to obey, so much so that God's laws are not burdensome. You see the wisdom in them, but even when you don't, you're willing to follow out of love. And if that's not you, let me just encourage you to, to see the love of God. To consider Christianity as not something of just no importance, like the inactive people seem to portray, or something that's like a, a big burden, like the pride people, the Pharisee people, or the penance people seem to portray. But that, in fact, as we talked about last week, God is, is love. So great is his love and holiness that he sent his son to die for your sin. Won't you receive that? I just ask you to think about these things and consider as we watch John's baptism video and then get to see him be baptized. Let me pray for us. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do ask for your grace this morning to make your word um, understandable for us, Lord. Help us to see maybe our obedience that we've done for a long time or a short time. It it may not be out of love, Father. And if so, we can just make that adjustment. But I pray more than, than correcting our obedience, Father, that you would help us to see our hearts towards you. I mean, it's possible to love you and just get a little mixed up on the way that we obey. But, Lord, the bigger question is, do we love you? And I think the question behind that, Father, is, have we known your love? This morning, will you help us to see your gospel and respond to it? And Lord, we pray that as John's baptism video starts and then we get to baptize him, that your name will be glorified in John's life. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.